Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 16, Exodus chapters 18 and 19. Last week, we got a little way into Exodus chapter 18 and ended where Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, Yitro, all right, in Hebrew, brought Moses' wife and two sons to him for a reunion. And we find that a lot of news had reached Yitro, apparently, about some of the amazing incidents that had occurred in Israel's flight from Egypt. Now, Yitro was a pagan priest, and he naturally accepted that many of these incidents that he'd heard of were miraculous in nature and could only have been brought about by the god or gods that watched over the Israelites. Moses and Yitro spent much time together as Moses recounted exactly which god it was and gave Yitro some of the dramatic details over the past several weeks' journey. Yitro was so favorably impressed with Yehovah that he wanted to make this superior God his own God. In reality, though, it was less a matter of Yitro giving up all of his old gods and more a matter of accepting Yehovah as the greatest God, the God above all gods. Right. The process of accepting Yehovah for Yitro involved two specific sacrifices, which we learned last week were called the Olah and the Seva, and then sealing it all with a sacred meal. In essence, Yitro became an Israelite, though it's not at all clear that henceforth Yitro gave up totally his identity as a Midianite, and now thought of himself as a Hebrew. That's kind of an iffy proposition. So let's reread the last half of Exodus 18 to get our bearings for this week's lesson. Let's start reading at uh, Exodus 18, verse 13. The following day, Moshe sat to settle disputes for the people while the people stood around Moshe from morning till evening. When Moshe's father-in-law saw all that he was doing to the people, he said, what is this that you're doing to the people? Why do you sit there alone with all the people standing around you from morning till evening? And Moses answered his father-in-law, well, it's because the people have come to me seeking God's guidance. Whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me. I judge between one person and another, and I explain to them God's laws and teachings. Moshe's father-in-law said to him, what you're doing isn't good. You'll certainly wear yourself out, not only yourself, but these people here with you as well. It's all too much for you. You can't do it alone by yourself. So listen now to what I have to say. I will give you some advice and God will be with you. You should represent the people before God and you should bring their cases to God. You should also teach them the laws and the teachings and show them how to live their lives, what work they should do. But you should choose from among all the people competent men who are God-fearing, honest, incorruptible to be their leaders in charge of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Normally, they will settle the people's disputes. They should bring you the difficult cases, but ordinary matters, 
they should decide themselves. In this way, they will make it easier for you and share the load with you. If you do this, and God is directing you to do it, you will be able to endure. And all these people, too, will arrive at their destination peacefully. Moshe paid attention to his father-in-law's counsel and did everything he said. Moshe chose competent men um, and made them heads over the people in charge of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And as a general rule, they settled the people's disputes, but the difficult cases they brought to Moshe, but every simple matter they decided themselves. Then Moshe let his father-in-law leave, and he went off to his own country. Well, the day after what's commonly considered Yitro's conversion ceremony, Moses was sitting as a judge of the people. That is, he was the arbiter of their disputes. And apparently he was the only judge, because there was this long line of people wanting to bring their grievances before him. It says the people stood in line from sunup to sunset. And Yitro observed this, and at the appropriate moment, he discussed it with Moses. Now, although typically we tend to remember this incident as being based on Moses being wearied or overworked, in fact, Yitro's main concern seemed to be for the people who waited endlessly to stand before Moses. And it's also made clear in verse 15 that Moses not only judged people's legal matters, he also he was also their spiritual advisor. That is, they came to him to ask him what God wanted them to do in certain situations in their personal lives. Now, this was kind of a good news, bad news deal. I mean, it was good that the people were learning to seek out Yehovah for his direction, but it was bad news in that the people felt the they could only approach Yehovah's wisdom through Moses. And indeed, Moses was a quickly approaching burnout. Well, one wonders where Yitro gained such wisdom as to offer Moses the advice that he did, which in essence was to set up a kind of government system with lower judges and higher judges and so forth. And apparently, though it's not revealed, God must have agreed with Yitro because Moses instituted it right away. Now the system of organization that was set up sounds very similar to the Greco-Roman system instituted a thousand years into the future from this time. There were to be leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, fifties, and tens. Now for those of us who've been in the military, we understand a system like this quite well. For those of us who haven't, basically it works this way. Ten people report to one leader. Five of these leaders, who therefore represent 50 people, report to a chief over the 50. Two of these chiefs, each controlling 50 men, all right, report to a fellow who controlled 100. Ten of those leaders reported to a man who was in charge of 1,000. Now, there are several interesting elements to this matter of Yitro counseling Moses that we shouldn't bypass. First is the matter that credit for the establishment of Israel's first justice system is openly given to a non-Israelite. 
Okay? Even more, Yitro was a Midianite. He was part of a confederation of tribes that in a very few years, God would order Moses to destroy. I mean, Midian would become much like Amalek. People specially marked for destruction due to the trouble they caused God's people. Now, second of interest is that this judiciary system that Yitro recommends and Moses institutes is purely secular. That is, it's not composed of those who will be God's set-apart servants from among Israel, the Levites and the priests. In fact, verse 21 makes it clear that the chosen judges would come from among all the people. In other words, these would be ordinary citizens, not tribal chiefs or princesses, a princess, not elders. Okay? The existing hierarchy of tribe chief, clan chief, head, elder, would be set aside in favor of people chosen for their wisdom and uprightness, regardless of their social status. Now, let me state right here, though, that politics and power have always played a role in men's affairs since there were enough people for there to be clans and tribes. So I have no doubt that the selection process that occurred was not quite as pure as it should have been. All right, and there was likely some rather severe behind-the-scenes arm-twisting that certain men might be omitted and others included as judges. Now, third point of interest. This secular judiciary, although validated by the Lord, was not ordained by the Lord. Jehovah didn't tell Moses to set up a judiciary, let alone tell him how to go about it. This was going to be a human institution. Now, I think that we can safely say that God's providence played a, a very central role in its establishment and the selection of the men. But there is a rather large and revolutionary, at least in Middle Eastern terms, democracy component here. All right, whereby the people have a voice in who's to be their judges. Now, fourth, this ju judiciary was to convene on a regular basis. This is not a committee all right, whereby meetings happen as needed and the judges reselected every time. In a community of three million people, there were plenty of disputes to be solved every day. Now, the bottom line here is that even before Israel received the law, they were pretty well organized. All right? Instructions and commands would have been disseminated very rapidly to the people and everyday disputes handled with dispatch. Now, what we also reminded from this is that Yehovah is a God of order and structure, not chaos and randomness. From the beginning of our studies, I've, I've asked you to take notice of the various God patterns we've been presented with, of the types and the shadows and the systems that we see in the Torah, because these aren't one-time only devices. Okay? They will be around at least until Jesus comes, and many which will probably still apply for all eternity. Now, God was showing Moses and Israel that his laws and rules and structures could be counted on 
and depended on and trusted. These commands weren't whimsical, nor did they change according to God's mood. They could know God. They could know God. To the extent a human mind can comprehend the ways of the eternal God of the universe, they could understand God. Now, what that means for us is that the order and method and reasoning God used in Bible times and in establishing the Torah are still in force today. And we see in times prophetic events unveiled in the future and some of them right before our eyes. So we need to take notice and know that's what they are. Now, I find it very comforting. I mean, Jehovah wants, wants us to be reassured, not anxious. He doesn't want us to be surprised. We're only surprised because we choose to be surprised. Now, at the end of chapter 18, it is made clear once and for all that as long as Moses is alive, he's the final authority in all matters. Of course, this has been stated for our understanding early in Exodus, and we're told that when Moses speaks, it's as if God spoke. I mean, is, is it no wonder that Moses is held in such tremendous honor and esteem by the Jewish people. I mean, as Christians, we should acknowledge Moses' special place in God's eyes as well. Well, Yitro's now given leave, which is just a polite formality, all right, to return home to his land, Midian, probably a very short distance away. Well, this now, with the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19, we end the second of the six divisions of Exodus, and as we enter chapter 19, we enter the third, which I've chosen to call covenant and law. So let's now read Exodus chapter 19 together. We're going to get all the way through 19 tonight. Exodus chapter 19. In the third month after the people of Israel had left the land of Egypt, the same day they came to the Sinai desert. After setting out from Rephidim and arriving at the Sinai Desert, they set up camp in the desert. There in front of the mountain, Israel set up camp. Moshe went up to God, and Adonai called to him from the mountain, Here is what you're to say to the people of Yaakov, to tell the people of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will pay careful attention to what I say, and keep my covenant, then you will be my own treasure from among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You will be a kingdom of Kohanim, priests for me, a nation set apart. These are the words you are to speak to the people of Israel. Moshe came, summoned the leaders of the people, and presented them with all these words which Adonai had ordered him to say. And all the people answered as one, everything Adonai has said we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to Adonai. And Adonai said to Moses, See, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud so that the people will be able to hear when I speak with you and also to trust in you forever. Moses had told Adonai what the people had said. So Adonai said to Moshe, Go to the people today and tomorrow. Separate them from me by having them wash their clothing and prepare for the third day. For on the third day, Adonai will come down on Mount Sinai before the eyes of the people. You are to set limits for the people all around and say, Be careful 
not to go up on the mountain or even touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. No hand is to touch him, for he must be stoned or shot by arrows. Neither animal nor human will be allowed to live. When the shofar sounds, then they may go up to the mountain. Moses went down from the mountain to the people and separated the people for God and they washed their clothing. He said to the people, prepare for the third day. Don't approach a woman. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder, lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain. Then a shofar blast sounded so loudly that all the people in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They stood near the base of the mountain. Mount Sinai was enveloped in smoke because Adonai descended onto it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the shofar grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with a voice. Adonai came down onto Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. That Adonai called Moshe to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Adonai said to Moses, go down and warn the people not to force their way through to Adonai to see him. If they do, many of them will perish. Even the Kohanim who are allowed to approach Adonai must keep themselves holy. Otherwise, Adonai may break out against them. Moshe uh, said to uh, Adonai, the people can't come up to the Mount Sinai because you ordered us to set limits around the mountain and separate it. But Adonai answered him, go, get down. Then come back up, you and Aharon with you, but don't let the priests and the people force their way through to come up to Adonai or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now as we enter this third section of Exodus, the one I call Covenant and Law, it is the third month of the Israelites' journey out of Egypt, or as it was called in Hebrew, Mitzrayim. Now ahead of them, lay a meeting with God that would not only change their existence and identity, but would bring a new dynamic to the whole world. Okay, Because Jehovah was bringing Israel out of Egypt in order that they might meet with him on the holy mountain, the mountain of God, for the purpose of establishing a new relationship with the offspring of Jacob. Now, Jehovah had been preparing Israel for hundreds of years, step by step, for this momentous day. He had created a separate people through Jacob, allowed them to wander in a land that wasn't theirs, then to sojourn and become an enormous nation in yet another land that eventually enslaved them, and then finally he rescued them from the hands of their oppressors. He let them witness great miracles. He demonstrated through the disastrous strokes against Egypt, which, by the way, did not harm the Hebrews, that Israel was a set-apart people. Or as the Bible puts it, God makes a distinction between Israel and everybody else. Jehovah personally led Israel by means of his visible presence through the desert wilderness. He fed them. He gave them water to drink through supernatural means. He fought for them. He defeated their enemy, Amalek, in battle. And as a result of all that God had done for them, had Israel really changed very much in the three months since leaving Egypt? Yeah. Yes and no. 
Yes, and that they were now fully aware that the power of Jehovah had no bounds and that Moses was his chosen man to lead Israel and that they certainly now had a healthy fear of Jehovah. No, and that their faith in Jehovah was still minuscule. They still didn't understand. Jehovah was not just the only God of Israel, but he was the only God. Period. They also didn't even remotely grasp the holiness of El Shaddai, the God Most High. The Lord God was about to form an unprecedented relationship between a God and man. A covenant relationship. The first covenant God constructed was far more of a promise than a covenant. Okay. The Abrahamic covenant was a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be many, that the Lord himself would provide an already decided upon land, land for all of his descendants to live, and that through these descendants, every family on earth would be blessed. Abraham had no obligations. What the Lord would do had nothing to do with Abraham's behavior or actions. Now, the covenant the Lord was about to make at Mount Sinai was fundamentally different than the Abrahamic covenant. The people of Israel had obligations to perform with this new covenant. How God would respond depended on how Israel behaved. Now, covenants were a very normal and everyday way in that era of either two people of equal power who would make an agreement that was mutually beneficial, or the covenant was of what was called the suzerain kind, in which a king would make an agreement with his subjects. That is, it was the establishment of a relationship between unequals. Okay. One man has the power, the other side was under his control. His subjects could be a few hundred people who formed his kingdom, or in the case of an empire builder, it could consist of entire nations that he controlled. So while we use the term covenant when speaking of the promise from God to Abraham and shortly of the oracle given to Moses on Mount Sinai, they are covenant-like, but they don't precisely fit the standard covenant purposes or terms of those ancient times. Now further, that a God would form a covenant-like relationship with a group of people was an entirely new phenomenon. It was and remains unique among all known religion-based cultures. So what we'll find is that it is not that many of the laws and ordinances that Jehovah will ordain through Moses are brand new and, and strange to the ears of the Hebrew people. Most of the laws and commands God would give were familiar and they had parallels in other Middle Eastern societies. It's that the relationship of the Hebrew people 
to their Hebrew God, a covenant-like relationship had no parallel. And now, in verse 2, Israel has arrived at the foot, at the base of the holy mountain. And Moses began to ascend it, surely climbing towards that very same spot where he had met God in the form of a burning bush going on two years earlier. No time was wasted. Immediately, Yehovah tells Moses that he has a message for the people of Jacob, of Israel, and it's this. First, people of Israel, you're not here because of anything you did. I smote the Egyptians for your sake. I carried you to this spot, and now I bring you to myself because I chose to do it. Second, if, if, you will hear, accept, and follow the new covenant I'm about to give you, then you will become my own possession, my own precious treasure. Third, if, if you follow this new covenant, then God will consider you a kingdom of priests and a sanctified, holy group of people. Now notice, I said new covenant. This this covenant, what we generally call today the law or the Mosaic covenant, was indeed going to be a new covenant. It hadn't existed yet. The covenant Israel was operating under that moment was what? Hmm? The Abrahamic covenant. It's the only covenant they had at that moment. It was 600 years old at this point. That covenant promised them a special land of their own. One where they would grow into enormous numbers. Through them the whole world would be blessed and that Israel would be exceedingly fruitful. This new covenant they were about to receive certainly wasn't meant to abolish the older one, was it? I mean, the covenant on Mount Sinai didn't replace the covenant God made with Abraham about 600 years earlier. God didn't say, you know what, I think in place of giving you a promise for a land all your own. I think instead I'm now going to give you my law. That isn't what he said. Okay. The newer covenant the Hebrews were about to receive was for a different purpose than the older one. Those two covenants, the Mosaic covenant and the far earlier Abrahamic covenant, were to work hand in glove. Now this is one reason I really dislike applying the term new covenant to the covenant that is Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. Because in particular our Gentile mindset, we have this picture that once we have a new covenant, then certainly the older one or ones must be obsolete, abolished, and replaced. Right? We got a new one, so we got to get rid of the old ones. Not true. Certainly as regards the covenant with Christ, the covenant that is Christ, in a sense, some elements of the earlier, the two earlier covenants were transformed from being what shadows and types of a future reality into the higher essence that they'd always been pointing towards. For instance, the sacrificial system using animal blood to atone for sin, by the way, that actually began back with Adam and Eve's era, okay, would be transformed into its fullest sense in Yeshua. 
His blood being the real blood that had been pointed to by all those animal sacrifices and therefore the sacrifice of Yeshua was the last and final sacrifice for atonement of sins that there ever needed to be. The sacrificial system though didn't end. And it didn't really change. Rather it was transformed. Blood of an innocent was still required to atone for sin. So each time we, in faith, count on the blood of Christ as having already atoned for our sins, we are fulfilling the point and purpose and spirit of the entire sacrificial system. Yet in another sense, each of God's covenants at the time they were given were fully developed and fully established for the divine purpose that Jehovah created them. I want you to follow along very clear, carefully here for the next few minutes. Give me all your attention, please. You know, we buy new models of computers and cars because the new models have features and capabilities that the older models didn't. Because our knowledge and our technology advances um, make us able to create better things, more useful, more complete. This is men's way. That's not God's way. God did not create a primitive, low-tech covenant all right, with Abraham and then create a more advanced, next-generation version with more features in it in the Mosaic covenant. And then as God's vision and capabilities grew, an even zippier covenant with all the bells and whistles and something we now call the new covenant that is Christ. Each and every one of these covenants were created and remain perfect and intact for the purpose God intends for each of them. Now certainly, some parts of the covenant are aging as, 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 as of each of these covenants are aging as Paul says in Hebrews 8.13. Because as time goes on, more of the terms of each of the covenant gets closer to complete fulfillment. Look up here at this chart. That is, the older the covenant, the more of the terms have been fulfilled, and the fewer that are left to be fulfilled. For instance, in the Abrahamic covenant, Israel was promised a land of their own, and guess what? They got one. Right? Never to be ejected from it again, by the way. And Abraham's descendants indeed have blessed the Gentile world as well as the Hebrew world by bringing us the Messiah. And in the Mosaic Covenant, the purpose of the sacrificial system has been brought to pass in Yeshua's death. But the purpose of the law in showing men what God's principles and attributes and morals are and what pleases him and what displeases him are going to go on until at least the millennial kingdom. How else are we supposed to know what God's definition of sin is? That's where it's contained. Even the newest covenant has items that have been checked off. 
So the son of King David, the Messiah Jesus, has already come and gone and atoned for our sins. Oh, well, by the definition we usually hear, I guess that means the new covenant's obsolete now too. Right? I mean, because it's 2,000 years old and some of its terms have been fulfilled. Well, of course that's not the case. The Abrahamic covenant is furthest along the path of having all of its terms completely fulfilled. The Mosaic covenant has many elements fulfilled, but there's many more yet to go. And the New Covenant has some elements fulfilled, all right, but much more left to be done. I mean, this concept that the New Covenant in Christ is done, and that it's just something we look back on, I don't know where people get this. All right, It's just begun. I mean, we're still waiting for his second coming. We're still waiting for the salvation of all Israel. We're still waiting for the, 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 the giant destruction of Armageddon. We're waiting for the setting up of the millennial kingdom. I could go on for ten more minutes of what we're still waiting for. All three covenants were needed. They're all still valid. It's just that some are closer to having every last element of its purpose completed more than the others because some are older. Now let me give you a very short analogy and we'll move on. You know, when you build a house, it has several basic components. You start with the ground preparation, you pour a cement slab on it, all right? Then you frame up some walls, put a roof on it, do siding, drywall, etc. Now, if you prepare the ground, and you pour the slab and complete that portion of the job, does that mean at that point the slab and its purpose is dead and gone? Right? That the slab all right, is now somehow obsolete just because its use and purpose have been mostly completed in the order of the building of the house. Of course not. Okay? The entire house must be built on that slab. That slab is going to carry the whole load of what comes after. The whole load. Dissolve the slab, somehow magically remove it. There's no way to build and complete a house. Okay? It's that way with God's covenants. They were all necessary. They're all still necessary. Okay? In verse 7, Moses, who was instructed to take this message from Jehovah to the people, assembles the people's representatives, the elders, and tells them what God said. I mean, look, don't think for a minute that all three million Israelites were gathered to a spot where they could hear Moses speak. Moses didn't have some giant, I don't know what, goatskin megaphone, all right, allowing every last person to hear his voice. Okay. We would do well to understand that between verse 7, where the elders were gathered to Moses, and verse 8, where the people responded, that they would do all that Jehovah instructed, some time passed. A few days, I suspect, because the elders would have gone back to the people, as the people's representative, after a, their initial meeting with Moses, each according to his tribe, and told group leaders under them what God had said. Okay. And those leaders would have told smaller groups until each person had heard God's words and they'd responded affirmatively. 
then they would have gone back up the chain of command until it reached Moses with the answer that the people of Israel, by their own choice, stood ready to obey Jehovah. So here we have seen a demonstration of another critical God pattern. Okay. First, God makes us aware of his presence. He makes me aware. He makes you aware. And then, secondly, he asks the question, will you listen, obey, and follow me? Third, if we respond yes, then he enters into a relationship with us and begins to acquaint us with his will for our lives. If we respond no, conversation's over. Now, maybe just for now, Maybe forever. So before God gave Moses and Israel his will for them through the Mosaic Covenant, he first told Moses, go to the people um, based on what little they knew of God to this point. Ask them, will they listen to me and obey? Since they said yes to God, he says, fine, now I'll lay out my will for you. It's the same procedure for us with Christ. We're made aware of his presence. He follows up with an offer to be our Lord. And if by our choice we respond yes, he enters into a relationship with and guides us according to the Father's will for us. Now, why would anybody think that the principle for entering into a relationship with Jehovah would be different for us today than it was for Israel at Mount Sinai a mere 3,400 years ago? Time is irrelevant to God. Okay. Is this not the eternal, unchanging God we're dealing with here? I mean, God didn't set up these divine patterns and plans and act them and record them here in the Torah just to change everything up on us at a later date. Though to listen to some leaders and teachers, you'd think that's exactly what he did. Kind of a bait and switch. You know, he gave mankind first a defective and inferior offer and then replaced it with a better one at a later date. I mean, if that's the character of our God, then he can also rescind and abolish the covenant that's in Christ, can't he? Okay. Where would that leave us? Hmm. I mean, thankfully, that's not the case. It's time... The church realized that and realized that the Torah and the Old Testament carries just as much weight as it always had. Okay? We, we reviewed in this class over and over that Yeshua himself taught that not an element, not the slightest, had been removed from the Torah and with his advent it didn't change anything. And that anybody that taught that some elements of the law had been removed were to be con were to be considered what in the kingdom of heaven? I heard it. The least. And those who taught that God's word, all of it, remains as long as heaven and earth exists, will be what in the kingdom of heaven? Greatest. So let's follow Christ's directive and get back to Torah and rediscover so many teachings and aspects of God that have been thrown out and replaced with man-made doctrines over the centuries that have just led us on a wild goose chase.
many cases. Well, in verse 9, after Moses went back to God with the people's response that they would listen and obey, Jehovah told Moses that he would come to him in a thick cloud on the mountain, and then when he spoke to Moses, the people would also hear his voice. Why did God want everyone to hear him? So it says that they would believe Moses. God knew these people well. He knows us pretty well. Despite all that Jehovah had done through Moses, he knew the people would be skeptical of the laws and commands that Moses were soon going to present them if they didn't actually hear at least some of them come from God's mouths with their own ears. Now, before God would give them his commands and teachings, he instructed Moses that the people were to be cleansed. They were to purify themselves and their clothing by washing with water, and that on the third day after the purification process begins, then God will come to them. When we get into Leviticus, we're going to extensively study the purification process. All right. And it is, it is a fascinating thing to look at. It, 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 I think it will really begin to change your worship with God. But now, even with their purification, they can't come into God's dwelling place. Right? The holy mountain, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. Jehovah instructed Moses they were to actually build a border, a fence, if you would, as a demarcation point between the desert floor and that which was considered to be the mountain. Okay. Now here we get the principle that there is a barrier between God and man, between earth and heaven, that where God dwells is so holy and so pure that corrupted mankind is not able to stand in the absolute purity of heaven without being fully cleansed. And notice that despite the outward cleansing the Israelites performed, washing themselves in their garments, it still wasn't enough to cross that fence, that barrier at the bottom of the mountain so that they can stand on holy ground. You see, while the ritual washing they were instructed to perform was symbolic of internal spiritual cleansing, in fact, it was still only an external washing. Okay. The washing they did was not able to purify them spiritually. It simply is a lesson, a teaching, the accomplishment of which pointed towards the only way mankind could ever be spiritually purified. So even after they had washed themselves with water, they were not allowed to cross this barrier, not even to touch the mountainside, the holy side of the fence upon pain of death. This, of course, even applied to the animals. So you can bet that this extensive wall they built was high enough to pen in sheep and goats, which liked to jump over things. I mean, these were valuable animals. They didn't want to lose them to God's judgment. Now, it doesn't take a Bible scholar to figure out that such a fence would have had to have been made out of the only thing available to make a fence from when they were located. Rocks. They had lots of rocks. Not much else. In fact, the remains 
of such a fence wall have been found. Right at the bottom of a mountain called Horeb in Arabia. And God told Moses that at the appropriate moment he was going to sound a trumpet and call Moses and the people to approach the borders of the mountain, but staying behind the fence. All right, and then he would become visible in this thick, dark cloud that would ring the summit of Mount Sinai. I mean, can you imagine at this point the apprehension of the people? And I think the air would have been thick with anxiety and expectation as that third day approached. The people were about to see another side of Jehovah that up to now they apparently had not. I mean, suddenly this cloud forms, lightning lights up a daytime sky, thunder claps, all right, and the very ground they stand on, it says, vibrates and resonates with the rhythm of those thunderclaps. Okay. And, and when it seems as though they can't stand anymore, a horn, a shofar, is sounded from out of that cloud atop that mountain. The notes just echoing off these rock walls of the valleys below so loudly that it terrified the Israelites. And then it says smoke billowed up from the top of that mountain. Smoke like from a furnace. And the whole mountain physically shook under the stress of bearing the weight of the presence of God on top of it. And as the thunder and the lightning and the sound of the shofar built to this deafening crescendo, Moses speaks to God Almighty and Jehovah answers back. Not in a code, not in some kind of rumbling noise, but rather we're told with a voice. A voice that all the people heard and understood. But what the voice said was that Moses by himself should now ascend that mountain and stand before God, so Moses goes up. So now after all this build-up, the stay at the top was terribly brief. God immediately tells Moses, okay, go back down right now and warn the people not to cross over that fence you just built, all right, lest they die. He tells Moses also to warn the priests that they had better properly sanctify themselves just as the ordinary people had or that God would punish them. Apparently, the all-knowing God knew that many of the Hebrews had an inclination to disregard parts of God's instructions. Oh, we would never do that. They were. They were, they, they were about to. And Moses says, oh, God, they never do that. All right, after all, they're the ones who erected the border. They're the ones who erected the fence that you commanded. God says, I'm telling you, just go back down and tell them again. Because they're thinking about it. And by the way, bring Aaron with you when you come back. Now we see another God principle being set up. It's going to come into play upon the building of the wilderness tabernacle. And then it, then it will eventually transfer to the temple. Only the high priest, in this case Aaron, can enter into God's holiest place. And that only upon God's command. No lesser priest can do this. 
Now notice also what a special category Moses must be in God's eyes. Because Moses was able to come and go, stand on holy ground, see into God's face. Moses was higher than the high priest. Now let me make a quick comment and we'll close for the evening. I want to talk to you about this term priest as is used here. As of this point, there was no Levitical priesthood. So who are these people that's being referred to as priests? They're the firstborn of Israel. The firstborn sons of ancient Middle Eastern cultures tended to be the ones who carried out priest-like duties, okay? such as the honor of sacrificing to their gods for their families and leading the family in religious rituals and rites. This was soon going to change as Jehovah would establish this wholly separate priesthood and the function of being, if you would, the family priest for the firstborn was going to come to an end, but not without some trouble. Chapter, Moses, uh, chapter 19 ends with Moses trekking back down the mountain and once again telling the people of God's warning and his command to stay off his mountain. We'll get into chapter 20 next week.